0: down! I repeat, officer down! Welcome back to 1033. This is your host, Nathan Kappler, a podcast created for a first responder by a first responder. If you are not a first responder, you still are welcome. This podcast is aimed directly at trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder. PTSD is complex and often misunderstood. Our brave men and women who serve our communities often end up with behavioral and psychological issues as a result of experienced trauma from their careers. My goal is to share what I know, my personal experience with PTSD as a retired police officer and continue to advocate for mental health while providing support to those still in their careers. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical help, and I strongly suggest if you are in fact suffering, you seek out professional medical advice. Please join me on this episode as I continue to expose the reality of PTSD challenges. I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Welcome back to 1033. We are here today with Jess McLean. Jess McLean comes to us with over 19 years of policing experience. Currently, she is a corporal with the Federal Policing Wellness Coordinator. Jess, not only are you that, you are a mother to four children, a wife, you have a a few fur babies, and you are also dealing with post-traumatic stress. How are you doing today?
1: Um, I'm all right. I'm happy
0: to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I uh, So for the people listening, obviously you and I have been connected for a while now and we've been chatting and I've been getting to know kind of who you are and the moral compass that exists within and the kind of person that you are. Um, and the the immense compassion you have for other Mounties is something that I absolutely love about you. And I think, I don't know if your journey was always like that, if you're always able to hold compassion, but I think now at this stage of the game, you've learned just how important compassion really is. And it's something that you've probably helped kind of in your own journey with PTSD. Would you agree with that? Absolutely.
1: Yeah. I, I don't think it was uh, always there, <laughs> um, but I've learned Through my own experiences and now being in space with a lot of other people who have similar experiences um, and a lot of work (laughs) to be much more compassionate and open to everybody's true story.
0: and that's i mean and that's something we were just talking about too the power of story like we all have our own story like you've been listening to mine i kind of know yours and while we maybe don't have the exact same story when we hear each other's story we can borrow parts of it and we can put our own story together and we can almost offer ourselves a little bit more of a, a deeper healing in a sense so before we go into like everything behind the ptsd uh, I'd love to give the people that are listening just an opportunity to kind of hear kind of who you are and what your journey into PTSD uh, is, and how it kind of started.
1: Okay, that's a big question. <laughs> um, so I've been—I you mentioned I've been a police officer since um, 2003 for so 19 years. Uh, I spent my career um, my first several years um, working on White Rock. So in a nice small detachment, and then I took a lateral transfer to Surrey uh, RCMP, where I worked in um, youth and then um, community policing. Um, and then I went to federal policing. And um, my own career path I um, in White Rock, I had um, a number of um, sudden deaths and um, other really challenging files. Um, and then in Surrey, I um, had a few um, really tough uh, files. My partner was, uh, my coworker, um, was involved in an officer-involved shooting while I was off work. Um, and also, I went to some infant sudden deaths and um, other things, as well as um, uh, I had a few... Uh, physical altercations, one that resulted in um, a concussion and broken nose. <laughs> so I had a few things you know uh, in my career um, prior to um, going to federal policing uh, and I made a transfer to federal policing after the uh, after my, my second marriage began uh, I was expecting our son and my husband who's also uh, a police officer was involved in an officer involved shooting. Um, so I had a, quite a bit of, um, quite a bit going on the year that I transferred to federal policing. <laughs> um, but all of that backstory uh, sort of led to um, the development of uh, PTSD and um, depression for me. And um, I don't, didn't actually really realize it until my spouse began to do the work um, on his own injury and related to his, uh, his files. Uh, and I started to recognize some of the work he was doing. I was doing my own work to try and meet him um, and be prepared to show up for him as a spouse and a partner. And I started to recognize some of the things for myself.
0: Not many people, I think, in our position uh, maybe get the opportunity to be in a position where they're married to another police officer that's going through this struggle. For you, it's a really interesting story for me because you get to see someone struggle from it and then recognize what those struggles look like at home because a lot of times our struggles aren't really present with us at work as police officers, right? We're really good at hiding our struggle at work. Then we come home and then everything kind of just falls apart. So for you, you get to see those two worlds exist in the difference between them. And at the same time, you get to see kind of this, this chance, this opportunity for you to now reflect on, okay, if I'm seeing this in my partner, what does it look like for me? Exactly.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And the things that, um, things that we sort of joke about as police officers, the, you know, so, not so much the nightmares, although that does come up, I find, um, you know, or the sleep problems or the um, the physical pain that we, you know, kind of live with as police officers, just wearing the gear, but also the stress that it causes on the body, which I think you've talked about in previous um, podcasts as well as, um, you know, it shows up in your body. Um, But then also, um, you know, the like, let's go for drinks after work and um, sort of escapism behavior. um, Those kinds of things um, were really telling to me the ones that um, were really eye opening to myself because I started to notice them in my spouse were um, coming home from what was an average workday and just being so exhausted that they couldn't get up off the couch, which I had done for years. For years, I I would joke about taking my my children to the nail salon because I'm a girl <laughs> and go um, get my nails done. And I would bring my daughters with me, and they would get their nails done in the chair behind beside me, so that I could sneak in 20 minutes of sleep because I was so fatigued all the time. Um, which I now know is actually a very serious indicator of depression, um, and I sh- probably should have caught it a lot earlier. <laughs>
0: um for you and you you talked about to the journey of of being a newer member having had gone through uh, a divorce uh and I'm, i'm guessing that also ptsd around that time was probably most likely unbeknownst to you you didn't know you were suffering from it or maybe you did but you didn't see it do you think that also played a role in kind of the demise of that first relationship
1: Uh, I think that there are obviously there are other factors and in case he hears this you know I don't want to say anything to be disrespectful but um, you know there are other factors obviously but definitely um, the the work and the PTSD although at that time we didn't know what it was nobody talked about it nobody really ever started talking about this until I would say 24 Fourteen to 2016 where it started to be a thing that people talked about at all and really only in the last couple of years where people are more comfortable putting their hand up and saying oh no i have a stress injury or i have post-traumatic live with post-traumatic stress or um whatnot so but back then <laughs> it wasn't it just wasn't talked about in 2003 it just wasn't spoken about um and you know but I would I would definitely say my ex husband was also a police officer, um. So you know it's possible that both of us were were struggling with m- many things to do with the work as well as our personal disconnects. So.
0: And again, like I don't I don't bring it up to obviously put you on the spot, uh, whatsoever. Yeah. But it's I always find it interesting too because where this goes next for me in conversation is police officers tend to have a very high rate of divorce. mm mm-hmm right? We're at a very high uh, susceptibility for that. So my mind now that I'm in a place of trying to nudge along my own healing uh, and knowing some of the challenges that come from relationships when you're navigating the complex world of PTSD, I can totally hold compassion for people that have relationships that just break down. Uh, Because in PTSD, many times it becomes very difficult to even have a relationship with yourself.
1: Exactly, and and also the instinct to withdraw and isolate, um, to not, even to want to protect your partner from some of the things that you're experiencing, um, those are all very very real, and then you add in the the, uh, I want to say bravado. Uh, you know, it can never happen to me. I kind of, uh, you know, uh, it just kind of making it lighthearted, but we're kind of like teenagers you know we you know we're, we're, we think we're bulletproof and we have to believe that in order to safely go into our job right we have to be prepared for everything and we have to believe that we're prepared so that we can run in when other people are running out um, but that can carry over into your other relationships and um, with your spouse and also with your children and um, and I'm saying that and I know a lot of your audience may be not women but I have to say I talk to a lot of men and, and this is something that's very very concerning to them. Um, men tend to talk about it a lot less, how important their families are to them, and especially amongst their peers. But what I hear regularly is that it, it is the most important thing. And they often don't tell their spouses and their children. They they try to protect them because as a whole, we are protective. So,
0: For, for myself as a man, to reflect on that statement, and I have to completely agree with you. It's only been I probably since when I retired where I actually started talking to my daughter a little bit more about, hey, this is what mental health looks like, right? Like we talk a lot about your body and keeping you healthy uh, and making sure you're eating well or you're stretching or you're doing exercise. But we also got to make sure we look after the mind. It's really important. And she kind of understands that. But before all of this, Jess, like I wouldn't have been caught dead talking about this stuff to my family, right? But now it's something that I've recognized the only way through it uh, so that everybody understands where you are is you've to embrace that vulnerability and you have to talk about your mental health and you have to champion what your PTSD looks like in your family so that your, your family can support you. I don't know how many times, and I can say this, like this has happened a lot where I will break down crying from something because I'm not afraid now to show my emotions And my daughter will come over as she's five and she will console me. She'll be like, dad, are you okay? Right. And what a powerful moment for her to see that her dad is human. I have emotions and I break once in a while and it happens and it has to happen for, for, for me being a police officer. And I'm sure you can relate. There probably wasn't too many times where at a call, when you felt like you probably should be crying, you did cry. You maybe went and did it later, or you maybe didn't do it at all. And you stuffed that stuff down and you kept moving forward. And that's There's where PTSD no can come from, right? <laughs> that's where PTSD yeah. can come from. It's unprocessed emotion and trauma.
1: Yeah. And yeah. And the, I don't even know really how to sort of say that better. Um, and, the, and then my next thought when you say that about your daughter consoling you is that, you know, what, if, what burden does that put to them? if we're not able to do the work ourselves right so when you're doing the work and you're having the conversation that's good but i left it and my 15 year old cornered me because he was like mom i'm really worried about you that's pretty sad (laughs) yeah i have to sit with that for a minute but you know it's really hard when your your child comes to you because they're i'm super worried because you're so sad all the time and you sleep all the time it's not a you don't want it to get to that point so it's so important to do the work early um, and often, and maybe before you need it. I'm um, a big, um, big on, you know, knowing what your benefits are and using them before you need them. You know, it's just like if you your back is sore, well, why don't you use that $4,000 or whatever a year it is that your benefits cover um, to go proactively and get in front of that physical pain? Why don't you use the psychologist benefits that you have, the marriage counseling that you have, the extended benefits that your children have to access psychological supports? Um, and do it before the injury or before you think you need it.
0: The, and the strength too for your young man to come to you and just even acknowledge those moments even for you, right? Because children know. Yeah, They know when something's not right with their mom and dad. Like, And the, the beautiful thing I've learned as a father is when you have kids, and you'll totally see this too, Jess, with your kids, when they come into the world, they're like these little bundles of emotion. They have no logic. And then there's us on the other end who are these bundles of logic and we tend to have less emotion, right? So now you have <laughs> these two separate types of people who are trying to figure out how to exist in the same space and your kids will point out your emotional flaws very quickly. And they know how to read you like a book. So when they see that yeah. mom's not doing well, she's very tired, she's sad, whatever the case is, a kid's love and compassion to meet you in that space to say, hey, this is what I'm seeing. I mean, that that's actually kind of a beautiful moment. It hurts to be told that, Absolutely. But I think that's something too, like in the beginning, when you weren't seeing the depths of your PTSD to where now you can see it through someone else's eyes and also through your husband, as you're trying to help him out, you have a very good knowledge base now for your PTSD and you know how to, to deal with it a lot more in a healthy (laughs) way, right?
1: It's a, it's a work in progress for sure. I'm definitely, uh, I, I like to say it's a marathon, not a sprint, right? <laughs> but, um, definitely have a lot more skills just out of necessity.
0: <laughs> and that's, and that's something too, like, I mean, even for me, like I haven't, you know, in, in retirement, I, I've seen my own growth and my healing take place and I'm super pumped about where I'm at today and I've put the hard work in to get where I need to get. Is it gone? No. I don't no, think PTSD like, think necessarily okay. ever really goes away. And you're absolutely right. And But just for us to be able to hold awareness into what does it look like for us because of the horrible things that we see and how do we go on to lead the, you know, the healthiest version possible of our life.
1: Exactly. That's all we can ask I, for. I, I've heard it referred to as post-traumatic growth, and I would say that's probably what you're emulating right now. Is just you know taking your own experience, um, evolving it in your in your body and in your mind, and then making yourself a stronger, better version. Um, that's you know now able to show up for your family and for other people um, in a meaningful way. It's it's really powerful, actually.
0: Thank you. So to, to look back on your story with your, your husband and what you observed, what did you observe in him that kind of made you look at yourself and go, okay, I, I have something here.
1: Um, there were a few things, the, the, um, there was the, the one that really got me, I guess, was the, um, was the coming home super fatigued at the end of a day that didn't seem like there was a lot going on. Um, And then you don't realize that, you know, just walking into a policing building, you're bombarded with um, people uh, messaging about terrorism i guess you know walking into the first emails you see are about all the bad guys in the world you know there's a, there's a lot to take in just walking into a, a space like that that people don't think about and so yeah definitely that that fatigue and also um the managing life with like having home and having for me it was a glass of wine which often was more than one glass and then getting up in the morning and having have coffee uh, and having those things kind of pointed out as something that might be an indicator of not actually being present with your emotions, those were um, some of the um, the ones that I saw by observing some of the things I was seeing with him. And I said, as I say, withdrawing from um, my family was a big indicator for myself. Um, I also um, I share we we both worked in federal policing and and. Um, while the work is very important, the day-to-day doesn't tend to have a lot of ups and downs. It's fairly predictable. The schedule is fairly predictable, depending on what you're working on. Um, And, um, but I wasn't able to manage the stress of that very well. So if the, uh, you know, they've talked about a schedule change where we move from Monday off to Friday off or something, you know, which should be fairly easy to do. I, you know, I was just really really not able to manage that very well and you know embarrassing myself in in briefings by crying over something you know that everybody else was like that's ridiculous <laughs> so um you know i had a bit of a rough ride there for a few years when my husband wasn't doing very well and i wasn't doing very well and started to recognize it for myself and just trying to manage it all um and i had a um yeah, a bit of a conflict with one of my supervisors which um I don't really want to get into but um, but you know we had to work through that um, he and I I think found our way through <laughs> um, and we still are co- colleagues now so um, but at the time I don't think that I was behaving in a way that he could support and probably he was responding to me in in a way that wasn't very effective either <laughs> so uh, <laughs> yeah.
0: The and I mean, I love the the vulnerability and the authenticity and just the fact that you're able to reflect on your own journey, because I went through that very much as well. Like when my PTSD really got bad, it was, it was in those briefings where I became all of a sudden a very challenging person to when someone had proposed something that I didn't agree with or had triggered me. Right. Right right? And that these, I mean, these again are kind of the canaries in the coal mine, right? Where you're no longer able to sit and hold space with somebody and listen to them. And now you're becoming the argumentative. You're, you're very irritable. But again, like these, these things happen very naturally. It's not like you choose to allow them to happen. It's all of a sudden, you're facing depression. You don't have energy. You're trying to cope with this. You might be using wine or something in order to, you know, wind the body down at night to sleep and then caffeine to bring it back up. So you're kind of, you're kind of, again, like you said, shutting down the emotions and you're not feeling the pain and and you're not getting the rest either no so you're not no. even sure oh, well up and that's to- the
1: thing you're not even you're not sleeping that's, no. that's always the thing My, we always talk about in our house sleep is our foundation <laughs> if, the, if, we, if we have more than um you know, two days or three days of no sleep in the house, then everybody has to really do an assessment of whether home, work, whether work or school or activities are happening, just because if we don't have that foundation, uh, the potential for things to go sideways with uh, three school-age kids and a young adult and and two adults all not doing well is, the potential for things to go really badly is, is high. So we have to be really mindful of that. <laughs>
0: One of the things that my wife used to say to me, she's like, it was like walking on eggshells at home with you home. Yeah. She's like, I didn't know where you were at most days, whether you were going to snap, break something or, or just fly off the handle from nothing.
1: Yeah. And, and, and uh, I definitely experienced that. And that was actually one of the other things that, I, because I felt that way. And I eventually came to a place where I was like, nope. I'm not going to anymore. These are my boundaries. But that was because I was doing the work with the health, of mental health supports where I was like, wait, I, that's not healthy for either of us. But also yeah. I started to notice it in myself, my, um, and this still happens actually uh, when I get off work, everybody knows what time I'm going to be home and they make sure that the kitchen is, is like tidy before I get home. Because the potential for me to, if I've had a rough day to just, explode over a dirty dish is very very high so that's just that's just the reality of our uh you know i've you know they're conditioned to to respond to that because they know that my work right now is uh, a heavy burden and we're all kind of agreeing to do it for a short amount of time
0: (laughs) when i finally started to accept my ptsd and some of the behaviors that come from you know the dirty dish when i would come home Because again, very much similar experience. I now look at it as no, okay, I'm not um, insane or, you know, unstable. It's I've gone through so much in my career. I've seen so much trauma. I no longer know how to come home and hold peace within.
1: Right. I was a stick of to One of the symptoms is like, we want to, we need to be in control. Control is such a, a powerful piece of, um, PTSD and being able to let go of the control is really a, a healing tool um, but also um, a lot of us are going to have had the experience of going through depot, and, and that's what you're taught right everything needs to be neat and in order and if you everything is neat and in order then you will be safe and that is a condition response for us so when we're feeling out of control where do, where's our baseline if everything is neat and in order we will be safe
0: It is one of the, yeah, it is one of the hardest things for me. I did an episode early on in the podcast where I talked about my experience with Depot. And Mm -hmm. if you would have asked me about my experience shortly after Depot, I would have said, oh, it's amazing. I got trained how to be a police officer. And, you know, I learned all of these beautiful (laughs) things. And then now as I'm retiring, I'm looking back and I'm, you know, I'm stopping short of saying um, there was a degree of brainwashing that happened there. But I would definitely say that we were taught some skills that we did need to know, but they also bordered on, you know, very, very unhealthy ways of looking at life.
1: Yeah. And I think when uh, I'm going to say a word and it's probably going to, so trigger warning um, when they're talking about systemic racism, these are the things that they're talking about, right? Do these platforms hold up in our current world because You're right. There is definitely some conditioning. It worked. It worked for a single man in his early 20s who maybe had never prepared a meal for himself or eaten a meal or, you know, like at a fancy dinner or made his bed or did his own laundry. But does that hold up? Like for me, Depot was actually quite fun (laughs) Um, because I had a three year old at home and a house and a husband going to Depot, I didn't have to figure out what to eat I had to do my laundry (laughs) right like I already had a full-time job this was just you know a little bit more fitness for sure (laughs) than I was used to at the time but I
0: can remember (laughs) I can remember one of the big things that came out of Depot, and it was it was always watch people's hands right there was a big training element around the hands the hands are going to kill you and for me, like I definitely spent a lot of time reflecting on that now in retirement because I still to this day, catch myself looking at people's hands, and I go, okay, normal people don't think like this, and it's really hard to challenge myself because in retirement now I actually try to challenge myself to say, okay, what would a normal? I see, I use the word normal. What would a civilian do in this situation? How would they approach this? Would they come into it with like this state of like hyper vigilance and like scanning the environment and looking at the hands and in thinking, you know, what what twenty things are going to happen in this scenario, and what do I need to think about so that I stay alive? The amount of things that happen in our brain while we uh, while we are going to calls and dealing with people is so intense. And then that can translate into our, into our actual life too, right? When there, we're out just doing different things, shopping. And it's so critical that in order to get successful with those trains of thought, we actually have to almost try to eliminate them so that we can invite the body to find a place of peace and slow down so that it can recover it's Absolutely. so, it's so difficult. Like it's so,
1: reti- it's so interesting. It's the, uh, it's the thing where, um, when you have a group of police officers first, they can't decide where they want to eat, but once they do get there, everybody wants to sit with their back against the wall. <laughs>
0: There's so many, so many habits you have to challenge yourself on, right? Like even for me, like I left with 14 years and I still to this day, like I have to literally walk out the door and go, okay, what things do I need to actively do today to try and do it differently? So I can teach myself that I can trust someone right out of the gate. I don't have to think that they're going to murder me. Right. But those yeah. are skills you learn in depot that keep you alive.
1: Yeah. And actually it's very interesting. It's one of the things that I started to do uh, in order to start, uh, taking a bit more control but in a, in a healthy way to um, my day-to-day life when I decided I was going to start countering this I was you know going to start doing the work and it began by um, changing how I approached my entry to the building at work so I was you know I was feeling a lot of shame and um, a lot of frustration and anger and um overwhelmed at just having to come into the building every day and and dread and I don't know if you know that the feeling of dread of just having to walk into the building and I so I I was I said oh, I have to change it and so that was the my first thing and I said I have to change that and so I just began by um, making eye contact and saying hello to everybody I ran into and interestingly it made my day better because people started to look forward to it and then I started to know people's names and a little bit about them. And what that, the ripple of that was that people would actually actively come and seek me out because they also were feeling those things. And so just having a real, you know, conversation um, rather than just the, oh, how are you doing? I'm busy, which is our standard response, <laughs> you know, to change that, just change that just a little bit. And then just one little thing um, at a time, one person at a time just trying to change the repetition of how I had been behaving. And so I, I shifted it entirely.
0: That's a very advanced thought. Very <laughs> advanced thought.
1: It, but it was like a, I was taking yoga teacher training at the time. So in my defense, that makes I was sense. trying to do everything upside down.
0: <laughs> that makes sense. Hey, but that's that's literally like PTSD can flip your world completely upside down. And now all of a sudden you're having to do these life just so differently in order to bring something back up to the surface, something that's familiar. Right. Um, one of the things that you also talked about earlier was how you, maybe when you're triggered or you're facing something that you, you're not trying to control, but you're feeling like you maybe are not in control is keeping busy.
1: Hmm. Yes. Um, yeah, I really wanted to touch on this because um, while a lot of the things are similar, um, we all respond in different ways. And and, um, for me, on a day to day basis, I kind of I, I actually make light of it. I'm like, this is what walking wounded looks like, um, because a lot of people um, that I know think that I'm a high achiever. Um, I work very, very hard. I hold myself to a very high standard. Um, and, but this is a trauma response for me, and I have to be very, very mindful of it. I have to set myself up with people around me to call me on it because I will say yes to everything. I will burn myself out in order to avoid having to deal with the things that I don't really want to face myself. <laughs> um, and um, so my trauma response is actually uh, doing more. Um, and so I have to be really aware of that because I, the potential for burnout for me is, is very, very high, but I know my, I work with a psychologist weekly right now because of the type of content that my work is currently, um, just, and I have a bunch of people, I have plants, like my, my, my immediate team that I work with, um, who's amazing. But then I also have colleagues that I trust that know me and know me well, who I have specifically spoken to and said, "Hey, I I need you to check in on me too, um, because you don't see me every day, and I need you to come and make sure that I'm yeah, my baseline's good and call me on my bullshit." Sorry for the language, but <laughs> I've so. had much worse. Okay, <laughs> wasn't sure if we were a PG or not.
0: <laughs> I leave it open to the person. You steer the ship. So for you, like, how do you or have you recognized kind of what the theme is where you might get pulled into this coping mechanism of trying to stay busy to avoid? Right.
1: Right. Um,
0: And again, we don't have to get super personal about it either, right? But just have you kind of developed what that theme is? Is it something that may cause anxiety or, you know, what, when is it that all of a sudden you flip into, okay, I'm going to stay busy now and I'm going to focus on something else in order to avoid this, which causes me X, Y, or Z.
1: Yeah. um, I think it's often, often, um, maybe when things at home are, are feeling a little, uh, unstable <laughs> or, um, or there's just a lot going on at work and I don't want to sort of deal with it. And uh, for lack of I'm trying to, I'm, I work on being, being self, super self-aware. So I'm just trying to think of how I would say it to somebody who maybe wouldn't recognize it for in themselves, but the, um, it's just that an example, somebody was, talking to me recently, because they wanted to do um, a social media um, presentation. And they're like, "Oh, we heard that you might know something about social media. And I was like, yeah, no, i I administrate in my spare time for uh, Facebook pages with 1000s of people in them. Um, I volunteer on the uh, MPF's, um equity inclusion and diversity committee. But I didn't volunteer. I'm one of the 12 people that initiated that that platform. And now a year later, we're still trying to move that forward. These are just things I do outside of my regular, (laughs) but these are, these are all, um, avoidance things that I do in order to, um, uh, it looks really good. It feels really good, but I'm not actually dealing with the thing that I should be dealing with which is maybe working on my marriage or doing a little self-reflection or practicing my own self-care um you know
0: (laughs) holding Uh, space
1: for other people as a diversion
0: (laughs) I think a lot of times too even for myself as I reflect on this a lot of times when I knew I needed to do something which maybe was going to challenge the post-traumatic stress I would do something else. And I would get busy with that in order to not have to go back and deal with the pain of, you know, whatever it was. That was exactly, going on.
1: exactly. There's a um, a recent example, my daughter started going to see a, a counselor and I'm really happy about that. And the counselor asked me to go in and sit and just have a conversation about how things were going. Uh, and maybe give me some guidance as a parent to support her. And it's, all, all super positive. And uh, I came out and yeah, I started uh, <laughs> a new Facebook page and practicing on TikTok because I uh, it's you know, <laughs> something totally different <laughs> rather than actually like dealing with the fact that my parenting skills might be being critiqued. <laughs> and that's,
0: and that's an avoidant behavior we learn, right? Instead of having to deal with the pain of recognizing that, okay, I'm maybe not of you know that good of parent that I thought I was or there's some very real issues that I'm causing in the family I'm going to go and do something different it can be that simple sometimes it's just avoiding the the emotions PTSD wants to keep you numb and detached
1: exactly exactly it's because it's your brain's trying to keep you safe right the lizard brain comes active and it's like hey this is the most important thing and, and um, also you know certain things ourselves are, self- are soothing right and hearing from other people that you're awesome is feels really good (laughs) totally um so you know it require it really does require a lot of like awareness um that you're doing it and um as i say my spouse and i have a really i think really good communication um around this and we're both very comfortable with challenging each other on it um in a way that's not um you know, not critical. It's just like, Hey, seems like maybe you're taking on more than you should again, or, you know, for him, it might be something else, but
0: I'm going to even reflect to even on my own journey, which is probably quite similar to yours. So before you even acknowledge that you had PTSD, like for me as a young police officer, I went 110 miles everywhere in life. Right, And it was almost like this twisted coping mechanism that I had summoned up for myself to, you know, despite knowing very early on that I was starting to go through some very serious changes, I just stayed busy and hoped that I was okay. Right. And it was such an unhealthy approach. Um, Now, something I also learned about too, which might help you kind of think back to kind of what this might look like, was survivor's guilt. This was a term that I never really had heard until much later on in my career. But survivor's guilt is another thing that kind of leads us down a path of pulling in this idea that we need to stay constantly busy in order to avoid any painful emotions that may have come from watching someone die in front of us Mm. or watching Mm -hmm. death at whatever stage you know that it happens so survivor's guilt too can be this layer of wanting to stay busy constantly like i noticed too even when for, when i go for a walk this is where survivor's guilt gets me when i go for a walk my pace is always through the roof yeah. it's always fast and then i'm always like okay i gotta slow down and then when I yeah, slow down, exactly. I invite the body to slow down and the mind to slow down. And now all of a sudden I'm able to ground and recover and, you know, promote a safer space for the body to feel better. Yeah.
1: Exactly. it's This is such and, an interesting topic. And then there's topic. an interesting, it's so interesting, uh, it just led me to think of it, sorry to interrupt, but the, so I practice yoga, I have for a number of years, I lead yoga practices and, um, but, uh, uh after I'm um, a Heidi Steven, the Nova Scotia incident, um, I was kind of the person in our work. I, there weren't many people going into the office, but there were a number of, you know in excess of 50 people that I spoke to that day. Uh, and I stopped practicing yoga after that for for a number of months because I couldn't I couldn't be that vulnerable with myself. <laughs> I couldn't practice on my own or with other people. I had to I really had to come find my way back to it with other fitness in order like other fitness activities, because being in that space with myself uh, was just way too raw and vulnerable. So <laughs> I love wow, that's powerful. What else do you do? Yeah. No, very interesting. Um,
0: Are you okay to, to explore that, that real quick? Sure. Yeah. What was it about that event for you that caused that?
1: Um, um it wasn't the event itself. what I think we're all impacted when we hear um of other police officers that are in these kinds of incidences um and I think that maybe I related to Heidi because she was a mother as well but it wasn't that uh what it was was that my job which is still my job although we have learned a lot from that incident and how I do my job is very different than it was at that time but at that time a big part of what we were doing was um these in-person wellness walks, which in Coven was, was really hard to do. Um, but I was still doing it and I was also reaching out in other ways to connect with people individually within federal placing, which is my kind of umbrella. Um, and the week prior to that, I had already received, I keep statistics just for my own purposes, just to sort of See how we're doing and whether we're reaching people. Um, and I had had 173 um, individual requests for support, um, which were, you know, some of them were, you know, as simple as I just need to access my benefits, but a lot of them were my spouse has left me, I'm suicidal, my child is struggling, I'm struggling, and, you know, they were really personal. So it was just a lot already and then um with that incident i did what we had done in the past which was to go and make my presence known to the people who were in the in the building um and people were people were in pain already and struggling with covid and then this was just too much and so people saw me and they had we had established quite a bit of trust by that time because i'd been there for a year that everybody was really comfortable to tell me their their story, and so I, I went home. I got home, and I like broke down. I cried for half an hour. I just couldn't <laughs> stop. I cried for half an hour. My husband was like, "What happened?" And I couldn't even, I couldn't even tell him um, because there's just no words. <laughs> there still isn't words for holding that kind of space. Um, and so, yeah, I just I had to put the cap on it because I couldn't just <laughs> keep going like that. Um, so. Like I said, from there, we made some changes at work, but I, as I say, I had, I stopped practicing yoga. I had to really rein myself in, um, in a whole bunch of places because I did that. The, those, the combination of those things was, yeah, <laughs> very, very, very harmful to me personally and, um, wasn't, yeah, wasn't a healthy space at all. So
0: <laughs> when we, uh, when we lose a brother or a sister, and we may not know them but when we lose them we feel that
1: yeah and you have to know too like I have um you know my own close like my my partner I mentioned my partner at work um had had a officer involved shooting my spouse had been in an officer involved shooting my best friend was shot at work she survived and she's doing really well but I had all of those other experience my own personal responses to, to the situation, but then holding space for other people, um, which is really important to me. Um, yeah, I just didn't, I I don't think anybody has the capacity for what that was at that time. (laughs) If they do, I'd like to meet them and know what their tricks are.
0: (laughs) Well, and that's, and that's kind of the, the interesting side of the coin, right? As you and I sit here and we feel the pain that comes from the loss of Heidi Mm-hmm. And the tragedy behind that, and then the tragedy behind every other single Mountie that has been killed in the line of duty tragically. I love the fact that I can feel that pain now, but there was a point in my career when I had lost a brother or a sister and I felt nothing. Yeah. And that was scary. Exactly. That place yeah. is scarier than this right now.
1: Yeah.
0: Because that place is very different exactly so as much as someone listening on the other end of this may say wow these these two are just sitting here crying like what's going on here <laughs> uh no we're we're happy to be feeling to feel is a human thing and yeah, to be a police exactly. officer and go through these very significant events there is no shame in having to feel this kind of stuff we're human doing an incredibly exactly. difficult role of policing
1: yeah and it and we're proud of it. And that's the thing. Like I, I'm proud of the work that we do. And it, I, I don't know. I just feel like, yeah, it's a shame when we, when we don't feel it and it scared me when I wasn't able to feel it anymore. Um, that's a really great way of describing it. So thank you. Nate.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, I, I learned a lot. <laughs> Uh, Luckily enough for me. But yeah, I mean, and to go back to that, when you don't feel that kind of stuff, I mean, that's usually a very strong indicator that there's something very serious going on. And that deserves some exploration, for sure. Um, You talked a little bit too about some of the addictive things that can happen when we're suffering from PTSD and overexposure to trauma. You talked about it in the sense of, you know, something that's very socially accepted, which is coffee culture, wine culture. Uh, I mean, I even at times too, even on the podcast, talk about different layers of addiction that go into, you know, whether it's pornography or cell phone usage or anything that is kind of causing you to escape the present moment of reality, uh, your emotions, whatever the case is, and get into a different headspace, right? And to try and control the mood and all that kind of stuff. You talked a little bit about it. I know that you're not in active addiction, right? You're still a very healthy human being. Uh, You enjoy a drink from time to time. There's no shame in that. You enjoy a coffee from time to time. There's no shame in that. But where we have to be careful of, and you nailed this earlier, was that you're very aware too of your consumption of these more so the timing of it. How did you get to that point where you were so critical of yourself? And when you were say maybe having a glass of wine or having a coffee and like what for you kind of really tied this together of, okay, I need to pay a little bit more attention here.
1: Um, the, I, I started to feel like I was not, like I needed both. I couldn't not have the wine and I couldn't not have the coffee, but I could, you know, during, the, because the wine helped me wind down uh, and it was fun and it brought out my personality. Oh, you know, all the silly things that you tell yourself that aren't actually true. Um, and, then, and then I would need the coffee in the morning in order to um, get through the day or whatever. Um, and, um, and it would start earlier in the day, especially when we started working from home for a little bit of time. So then that work day would end and I wouldn't have that buffer of like driving home and having to prepare dinner. So it would be like, Oh, work day's over. Let's have a glass of wine. Uh, it just started to creep to a place where I didn't feel uh, really good about it. And, um, so I just, I, I now I'm on one coffee a day <laughs> and then I just push the wine as late in the day as I can. <laughs> It's a work in progress so <laughs>
0: hey i have nothing but respect for the person that has awareness into everything that goes into the body in this in this journey of ptsd that's all we can ask for right i'm not saying yeah. that everybody has to stop doing things in their life but at least if you have awareness into why you're doing it you're going to be okay right you're going to be one step ahead of the game. So that, I think it's actually fundamental too for a lot of people, especially with cop culture. Like you said, yeah. after a shift or after something significant that happens, and I saw this, I don't know how many times we would go through a traumatic vent and then everybody was like, hey, let's go for a drink. And then you go for a drink and you'd laugh about it instead of cry about it.
1: Exactly. Or talk about and the fear. And you know fear. what, the funny thing is it makes people more comfortable. It makes, pe- so that's why we do it. It makes pe- other people comfortable to like, have a glass of wine or a beer or whatever after work and and laugh it off um it makes people really uncomfortable when I cry in front of them you know (laughs) but I don't I I don't you know I don't cry all the time (laughs) although I sometimes feel it's more than I should but it it makes people uncomfortable but they know it's it's real right I laugh and I cry and I feel and I think it's important and I try to do that with for other people with in space with other people and just try to be really honest about all of it because, you know, but I do make a lot of jokes about coffee. I work uh, for that. The that. <laughs> but interesting, I only have one a day. <laughs>
0: <laughs> only one will never get you to rehab. Um, <laughs> the interesting thing, and you talk about this is being emotionally vulnerable at work. I don't think I saw a man be emotionally vulnerable at at work over the course of my career. No. And I know for I a fact.
1: A <laughs> and I know
0: well a lot now. Well, thank God.
1: <laughs> right?
0: Yeah. People, people that get uncomfortable with emotion at work, like, say, police officers. It's always the ones that suffer the most that are the most uncomfortable by the emotion.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's a big... Um, it's a big kind of yellow flag for me to maybe make a little bit of extra space for somebody who is responding in that way. Um, because often it's, it's just, you know, that they haven't really had a time to do any self-reflection and maybe they might be struggling too. So, um, yeah, I try to have a lot of compassion for people who are, are really angry or really, um,
0: disconnected.
1: Yeah. Um, or, you know um, making poor decisions as I often feel there's probably something more going on.
0: The story I gave, not that it's my
1: job, but just to connect them with people who might be able to help them.
0: (laughs) For sure. And I mean, these, these are the very small, subtle things that happen to us in the beginning stages of our PTSD where we, we maybe don't see the change happening, but it's definitely happening. Like when I was talking about my daughter coming to me and expressing, you know, empathy and seeing me cry. Like she came over and put her hand on my back and was genuinely like interested in me. Yeah. If a police officer can't do that for their fellow person, what does that mean for that that police officer that can't hold space, compassion, empathy, sympathy for that other person that's going through a painful moment, right? There's, there's a slight disconnect there that I would argue naturally has to have had happened in that moment. They may be suffering. They may have PTSD. The more normal thing for that situation is for people to actually come over and be like, hey, Jess, are you okay? Yeah. But yeah. it, that that also doesn't tend to happen in policing culture either, right? In the workplace, people just kind of go, oh, Jess is having a bad moment. I'm out of here.
1: <laughs> yeah. And then the problem that you and I have, Nate, is that we could go for days because what you've taken me, my squirrel brain to, is also how we isolate ourselves from the rest of the general public. We tend to, I mean, I'm, I'm a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, you know, my husband's a police officer, my friends are police officers, but the, that's what we tend to do uh, is to surround ourselves with other police officers who kind of doesn't make us very good police officers when we don't talk to our neighbors and doesn't no. do, do us any favors either to not, uh, to not engage with, you know, other parts of society. Um, and hear other people's story, Like you said, stories, hearing people's stories and being in space with them and being their coaches and being the leaders that we are in community. It, uh, when we surround ourselves with like-minded people, uh, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy that we end up injured.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And care and compassion is one of the first things that goes out the window when you start to go down that road. Um, yeah. You've talked a, bit, a little bit about the perfectionism too in life. <sighs> And that unsustainable a... <laughs> high achieving standard that you set for yourself. Why is that?
1: Uh, I think that's the control piece of PTSD. A big part of PTSD is the need to be in control. Uh, and then the other side of that coin, um, which I don't know if a lot of people talk about, I don't know if you've touched on it, is um, is the memory lapsing. Like uh, one of the things you're, this is a cognitive injury to your brain, and so uh, your ability to remember things is is has a lot of potential to be impacted. And so we're already we've already talked about the fact that like from as early as depot, we're taught that we need to be in control, things need to be neat and tidy and organized. We need to be we must stay on top of our diary dates, all of those messages, and then when um, when our injury is is active or we're in you know in right in depression or right in a cognitive reaction something has to give so often it's memory so that's um you know that high level of standard that i need to have and now i've built a whole bunch of things in my life in order to manage the fact that my memory is going (laughs) the so that i can put it down at the end of the day and sleep which is foundational in our home we've talked about before but to be able to set it down and not worry that I've forgotten something that's critical or feels critical to me.
0: So going back to perfectionism, like for me, when I walked into depot and I was taught, you know, how to make sure that everything was done perfectly, right? The polishing of the boots, the cleaning of the gun. And I mean, when we're talking about like perfectionism, (laughs) you know that when you were there, sometimes your gun was taken away from you and your instructor pulled it apart and somehow they would find like a tiny little piece of dust somewhere in that firearm and it wasn't good enough.
1: Yeah. You failed. Yeah.
0: And you now start using that same methodology to every single degree of your training, the writing of your crown reports, the way you collect the evidence, the way you do your job, you approach it with this perfectionism where you cannot make a mistake. And while, yes, that's a certain aspect of policing, but that is not how healthy human beings approach life. Mistakes no. are allowed. <laughs> Failures are allowed. They're celebrated. That's how we grow. That's how we learn. But the unfortunate part in policing is, it's really something where the RCMP takes it to a different degree, and they say we cannot allow failure. There's too much risk right. behind it, and it's and they're not
1: wrong. Like it's that's the thing not. is that there is a certain there, like there is a certain amount you do need to be prepared. Like uh, you do need to be prepared. To do the job, you need to be fit and healthy in all parts of your body and your mind. You have to. Um, and, but the reality is is that when you take the uniform off at the end of the day, you need to be able to put that down and function in the rest of your life, right? like You don't have to be that ready all the time
0: and it's very hard to do that too right to take the to mm-hmm. take the uniform off to now embrace maybe a more normal way of living where you're not chasing perfectionism and sometimes for us i think those those lines can definitely get blurred and again i don't i don't come out here to to blame the rcmp for this way a lot of these things that are put in place are designed to keep us healthy and to keep us alive on the job they have to happen but they change exactly. us exactly Right, we just have exactly. to be aware as to you know how deep this can go. Uh, so that's that's awesome that you brought this up to uh, as well because I know a lot of us suffer from from perfectionism <laughs> as well, and it can cause a yeah. And so of I always wonder:
1: is it the perfectionism of the training, or is it a coping mechanism? And those are self inquiries, right?
0: The other aspect, obviously, to this, like you and I were just talking about, was the memory. And it's not something that I fully understand, but I think, too, when we experience enough traumatic events, the brain's ability to store memories also gets impacted. So now, even as a a younger male or a younger female, we're now noticing that our memories are definitely impacted probably negatively because of our experiences, right? The mind just doesn't really want to store the memories as well anymore. It could be argued that we're getting older. Yes. But I also think too, there's a lot of times too where I just forget things that I shouldn't be forgetting. So that is very much an issue for me is an issue for you. And it can be frustrating.
1: Absolutely. And I've done a bit of work because uh, with my yoga teacher training and I did a trauma-informed Uh, extension of my training and then also doing uh, courses like mental health first aid and um, a few other um, courses around mental health um, and PTSD and trauma and and there's just there is science behind it that it does impact the brain is impacted cognitively so there's science there as well and then also if you add in sleep deprivation from working shift work uh, those sorts of things then it's just amplified so
0: yeah, all the nutritional issues that come from it. Something that was actually interesting, we were talking about that just before we uh, launched the uh, this episode was too for females. Mm-hmm. A lot of times females will not hydrate during shift because you have <laughs> to take off the belt and you've got to find a bathroom. And if you're on the road for 12 hours, it, bec- it can become an issue. So sometimes we just learn we don't hydrate.
1: Yeah, um, there's actually a book... Um of stories that were put together. And that's actually one of the stories in the book is, is that uh, a female member telling the story of just having to like push through an entire, like 20, like almost an 18 hour shift not using the bathroom once because they were just sitting on a scene and they couldn't, couldn't leave. So it was like either hold it or, wet themselves <laughs> so you just get to a point where you're just like i'll just i'll just i won't have anything to drink <laughs> i was saying though, no, i just bought myself a, a belt that made it <laughs> easy to get off so I, I didn't want to be that girl
0: <laughs> let's keep it pg let's keep it yeah. pg um now, your PTSD, you've done a really good job of kind of painting a picture kind of of what your PTSD looks like through your journey of of your service. Uh, and now you're in a federal position as a wellness coordinator. And something that I absolutely, and I talked about this at the very onset of this, was the compassion that you can now bring to the table in your position. And you can champion for people. And no doubt people feel safe coming forward to you and telling them, I'm broken or I'm confused. I'm in the fog. I don't understand PTSD. What am I going through? through people have these conversations with you now are you able to kind of i know we're not going to talk directly about the stats the internal stats of how many people in the rcmp have ptsd i know it's very substantial there have been external studies that have touched on this can we talk about that
1: yeah um so i took a a training um it was actually hosted by the abbotsford pd um, and i think it was called uh, trauma-informed leadership um, it was during mental health week uh, about three years ago. Um, and um, uh, I think it was Bob Rich was the OIC of Ab- um, Abbotsford at the time. And so they brought in a team of psychologists and they taught a two day session on um, trauma in the workplace and and trauma approach to leadership. And um, there was a study done and I was actually intending to bring it, but I couldn't find it today. But it was done at a alberta i believe but it was done across canada and of course the stats were voluntary uh and they were anonymous and they were through all first responders that responded um, across the country and the the numbers for um people in active mental illness so ptsd anxiety depression those kinds of things and a lot of us are familiar with the like the the color scale you know green to red so that would put them in the orange and red area um, just for reference and so first responders as a whole are anywhere between about 21 to 25 percent of first responders kind of across the country um, are in that space Um, the rcmp uh, scored a little higher (laughs) we're high achievers um, and that we were closer to 50 percent and then, you know, my, um, you know, just my experience in managing pages across the country, uh, like Facebook pages across the country, the number of people, colleagues and, and people I don't know who reach out to me, I would um, wager to say that there's a lot that are undiagnosed um, and that, that it, the numbers may be even higher than, than, than that. And if I think we were... a part of that is that we're removed. Often, we're removed from our supports. As part of being part of the RCMP, uh, part of our programming is to be removed from our supports. And so I think that maybe some of the the uh, the reason that our numbers may be higher is partially that where we're removed from the people who might be able to say, "Hey, wait a minute, things don't seem right," so we might not get the help earlier. That's a, this... that's me speculating. <laughs>
0: One of the things I learned, um, quite a while ago, actually, when I first started podcasting was I, I had two gentlemen reach out from the States and they were part of California highway patrol. And they said, Nate, you got to come down. You got to be on our podcast. We love, we love listening to you talk. So I joined them and we actually had a conversation around this very point, how a lot of Mounties leave their support systems in order to go off in police and the Mounties is big on that, right? You sign on the dotted line. We're going to send you anywhere we want to. Now, when I started to talk about it, that way because that was my perspective too both of them said hey you know what we actually think you're wrong on this because we actually went back to our hometowns with family and we ended up with PTSD too so mm-hmm. I think PTSD actually might just become part of our world regardless of where you are, but you are right. And I think in the sense just that if we do not, and are not going back to our support system, there's a high likelihood that our PTSD could come into the picture much earlier because that support system isn't there, right? We're or already maybe, socially disengaged maybe, maybe less... with.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, I could definitely see that. And, and, I just wondered if it was because our numbers were from this one, from this one uh, study were so significantly higher that maybe that might be a piece of the, cause it was almost double. When I heard the stat, I I I was shocked knowing, I mean, mind you, at that time my husband and I were very actively uh, working through our PTSD and I had a really clear picture of what that, what the really, really, dark places that that can be are. And when they're talking about people being truly in the, you know, the red, that that's terrifying to me.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely the the f- the plus fifty percent of people first responders out there diagnosed with PTSD I mean that is that is a very alarming stat but like you were saying the other fifty percent that aren't diagnosed could easily fall into that you know the members who are one to three years who are just starting to go through some of the trauma uh, they're not fully kind of aware yet as to what their PTSD might look like or the fact that it's on setting uh, and then also a large portion of people that no doubt suffer from this but refuse to acknowledge it I was always of the opinion especially after I had left that a hundred percent of us will go through PTSD how far do we go down that rabbit hole of PTSD I mean that really depends on the person and their overall health strategy so I try to say it that way because when you remove the this thought of I'm going to be okay I'm never going to get it that's when it's going to hit you the hardest that's something that I approach that way. I, I'm not saying everybody has to, but for me, I think, I think a lot of us go through this.
1: I think a lot of us do. And I'm much like you, I, I can hear the sort of like the struggle of, of it in your, in how you're explaining it. Cause it's like the, the likelihood of you experiencing a brain injury, let's call it what it is in your, in your career are very, very high. Um, But I'm also probably like, because I saw you kind of heard in your voice, you're like, I don't want to undervalue the experience of somebody who's, who is living with that really intensive injury. uh, And maybe... There's somebody who really they may have been experienced to a lot of traumatic things, but for whatever reason, it didn't cause the same sort of uh, injury uh, for whatever reason. And um, I, an example you told your story of um, the 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 horse um, that that and how deeply that impacted you, um, and maybe for somebody else, it would have not been that. Right. But for, for you, that the totality of those circumstances was a huge impact for you. Whereas somebody else maybe wouldn't have had that, you know, and they that wouldn't have they wouldn't have considered that a trauma. I'm not saying that it wasn't a trauma, but I'm just, you know, as an example. Um, you know, maybe going and seeing, you know, an elderly person has passed away for the first time, it wouldn't be traumatic for somebody. My first time it was traumatic. I wasn't expecting it. It wasn't what I was expecting to walk into. And it was traumatic for me. Um, you know, and there were wh- other files that I went to that were way more gruesome, but that one st- stood with me, you know, so like that one was traumatic.
0: <laughs> and that's how PTSD happens. It's really our journey it's the lens right. of life that we use to kind of use to i guess have our hold a perspective on life and when we go through certain traumatic things how we perceive that trauma and how we internalize it that's where some of the issues can come from like you said my trauma is so different than someone else's trauma yeah it's well, not the same we can't
1: compare same. like we can't no, compare we can't. them a wise uh he's a sergeant now that i worked with um said we were in we were in a training session and he said well he's like everybody's trauma is their worst trauma like
0: absolutely it doesn't
1: matter it doesn't matter whether it's that they stubbed their toe or (laughs) or they you know went to a traumatic car accident like it really doesn't matter if it's if it's traumatic for them that's their truth (laughs) and it's their worst day
0: (laughs) because we're talking about this and we didn't really talk about this um earlier The something that I'm kind of just thinking of in this moment is when I went away to rehab and I learned about, you know, my policing trauma and I was there to heal from my trauma. And then all of a sudden they were like, Hey, that's great. We're going to do that. But the real issues exist with your childhood trauma.
1: Mm.
0: Have you started to explore childhood trauma at all?
1: Yeah. Yeah. For me, uh I have like, I have a few things (laughs) so um, that's actually I had done that work thank God I had already done that work a lot of that work before Um, I mean it's still as I say we're in a marathon not sprint but those were underlying things that probably are what drew me to policing, if I'm honest so you know (laughs) let's see there's there's things that draw us to this work.
0: Totally. It's uh, it's a unique profession. And I mean, even though my heart was in the right place and I wanted to be a police officer for the right reason, I cared for people... I can definitely look back now, now that I've finally accepted that there is childhood trauma in my past. And I understand this whole concept and I'm not running away from it anymore saying, no, this didn't happen to me. Cause when <laughs> I first walked into rehab, I had this conversation with the therapist. They're like, Nate, you have childhood trauma. And I'm like, no, I don't. My childhood was normal. <laughs> and then they're like, well, tell me about it. And I'm like, well, what do you want to know? <laughs> right. <laughs> and you could tell, like, I was already feeling like put up the wall, put up the wall. And it was when my therapist finally asked me the perfect question where i just broke down in the chair and i was like okay yeah there's there's something there for sure we need to talk yeah. about it right and then as you start to talk about it and you start to see what your childhood trauma is and how it impacts you and then how it's later tied to the trauma that you go through as a police officer you really start to understand your trauma so much better and now that you know that that piece of yarn that's all knotted and torn and you know just mangled and it's long and it's it Covers your entire life, you can start to unwind it. Exactly, and put it back into shape.
1: Exactly, and I'm, I'm very lucky that I had a mother who uh, did a lot of her own work and encouraged me to do a lot of my work because we had a shared trauma when I was very young. So yeah, luckily I did a lot of work throughout the years because I had a mother who was self-aware enough to to kind of encourage me in that direction.
0: <laughs> and that's one of but, yeah, things. Yeah, like no, I, I
1: agree. Yeah. <laughs> I always
0: try to be careful with childhood trauma because there are still people that are going to come out and say, no, you're absolutely wrong. I don't have it. That's. Okay, that's your story. If that's what you yeah. want to believe her right now, I totally support it. But for me, yeah, I was once I finally acknowledged my childhood trauma and I was able to see it and deal with it and talk about it and deal with some of those emotions that had been prote- uh, processed in years. I finally st- found that I was starting to heal and create a new foundation to heal from. And that's where, you know, for some of us, our healing needs to start.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, yeah, I, I guess. I think for what happened with me is it's what ended up leading me to um, teaching yoga. That kind of thing is because I needed the next level, right? I had done a little bit of that. I mean, it's ongoing and it's a work in progress. And I have, you know, other things. Divorce is not easy and, you know, shared parenting with somebody that you're no longer married to. Those are not easy things. So I have new traumas, (laughs) but, (laughs) you know, so it's a marathon. And it's like, marathons are great.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You're naturally a very optimistic person. They are great (laughs) because they can give you an opportunity to run them. Uh, You sound, to be honest with you, Jess, you sound to be like you're flourishing where you're at right now in life. And that, that is the most important thing for me when I connect with people that have PTSD is they've gone through all of the hard stuff. They recognize, you know, what it looks like for them, whether it's the depression, the anxiety, do they go through addiction issues? Have they touched on suicide or suicidal ideation? How deep does the the pain go. But eventually, once you get to a place where things aren't good, you have to realize, okay, you are more important than this job, this career, your pain, you deserve to actually enjoy your life. So you at 19 years, and we've talked Lucy about this, You are not at the tail end of your career, right? I mean, you can still go for many, many years, but you've Mm -hmm. put so many amazing things together for yourself, the yoga, and you're looking at the future as well. You're still young, so you can go on to do many different things with your life. And that's the promising thing with this is post-traumatic stress doesn't have to be post-traumatic stress disorder. It can be post-traumatic growth.
1: Exactly.
0: So where are you going?
1: Oh, well, it depends on the week. (laughs) Um, My husband and I have many, many conversations. I don't want to, you know, show my cards too soon. But, um, you know, there is talk of what it would look like to maybe move on to something else. Um, We both really love our careers, though, and and we feel connected to it. Um, Right now, I'm just really excited about the things that we're building in the workplace. So I don't know if it's a good opportunity to sort of talk about that. So I've been in this unit, um, which is such a privilege, like what a gift, uh, I hear frequently and yes, it's going to, after all we've just said is going to sound like, oh, it's like trauma response, but I do, uh, hear frequently from people that I just, I'm in the right time and the right place to be in this role. Um, and, and I do believe that that is true. Um, and I also believe it can be taught. (laughs) Um, so I came in, um, I had the privilege of working. Uh, being in the workplace while I was supporting um, my spouse, uh, working through being off for an extended period of time and seeking treatment, various different types of treatment. And then my own personal experiences of just, you know, having to take mat leave and pat leave, um, getting to take mat leave and pat leave, um, having to access um, my benefits for my my injured back, my uh, concussion. um I had to have um, some some surgeries um, over over the years, so I've had to had the opportunity to really make uh, use of all of the things that are available to us, and I'm really quite fluent in what our benefits are and how to access them. <laughs> and I also have this compassion piece of of knowing that a lot of us have experienced traumatic events, and that uh, often by the time that we've sought help um, things are often quite bad um, by the time we put our hand up to ask for help Um, and when somebody has decided that they need to take some time off work um, things are frequently really 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 bad. Um, I use the, I often use the example when I'm uh, doing presentations about what we do. Um, you know, when we were on GD uh, working four on, four off and call to call or whatever our shifts were, you know, I, I know many of us would, you know, come in very, very ill or, you know, even throwing up and then you throw up and then you go and run to a call and then, you know, oh, I, I'm good. I'll stick it out because you didn't want to leave anybody short. So that mindset is with many of us. And so when somebody gets to the point where they're like, I need to take a month off, things have gotten pretty, because they don't want to let their team down, right? So I, um, I, the position posted for this wellness coordinator position, which in 2018, 2018 sound right? It's been there for three years my math is terrible <laughs> anyway and what they were doing was that it was it was taking care of people who were off sick was basically what the job was supposed to be um and so the job posted and i had a bunch of phone calls from people just saying jess are you gonna apply for the job and i was kind of um i was working files and i just promoted to corporal in the unit that i was in um and organized crime and drug trafficking and super exciting. And um, I was file coordinating, which I like. I know nobody else does, but (laughs) I really like it. And um, I really wasn't interested in taking that kind of turn in my career to go administratively. So I went and I met with them about the job and I said, I saw this posting and I'm considering putting in for it because a lot of people called. um, But I'm only interested in if you're willing to completely change how it's done, because I, I don't think that this is how, I don't think that the way it's being done is gonna work and have a lot of good ideas. And they were like, that's exactly what we want. You have the blueprint, come. So um, I was like, okay. <laughs> and um, I was also very lucky lucky to work with, um, there is a public servant who is new to the RCMP. He hadn't worked with the organization before, um, which is a a blessing and is part of the part of this the the way that we have set ourselves up because they bring in new fresh ideas they're from outside which you and i've talked about the importance of having people from outside of the organization to that have experience and um, training and skills in things that we aren't skilled at so that we can be really good at what we are good at um and so I told him what I wanted to do and he was like yeah I'm in (laughs) so we um it's taken a lot it's taken a bit of time and we have a lot more work to do obviously but um we've shifted the entire focus so if somebody takes time off Uh, we assume that it's because they need you and that they want to get healthy and well and be back at work. So everything that we do is based on that assumption. Um, we... Make sure that they're connected with the people in health services, which if anybody's listening to this, health services is like our work safe. And we really have to get into the mindset that um, the health services is supposed to take care of us. They are a resource that's available to us, but they aren't going to. They're not like your regular family doctor or your regular family psychologist or a nurse at the hospital. They are. They work for the employer and they are interested in helping us to get to our well-being with the resources they have available to us, but it's not their job day to day to hold our hand through the process of getting healthy. And so we just really define the roles. So their job is to know that you're not feeling well and what you need. That's what their job is. And you can get them that information in a way that feels safe to you, right? Like, That feels safe because obviously we're talking about medical information. They are very protective of it. And if you can get them what you need, the information about what you need, they are very eager to help you to get where you need to go. And I think that you said that that was in the end, your experience, Nate, was that the health services did help you to get funding for the things that you needed yes
0: no yeah no they were they were very much supportive um I think for myself I viewed health services as kind of an adversarial unit for a long time but I was also unwell and then when I finally recognized that I needed to embrace vulnerability and reach out and ask for help uh, they actually showed up perfectly and they were amazing with me and they did exactly what I had asked for and they gave me the support that I felt I needed um yeah. So it's through and through amazing people. They're definitely there to help you out. I don't know where, I mean, it's probably because of the PTSD we begin to have trust issues and we begin to look at health services as the demon. That's not accurate at all. Like they're, they're I good think people. Sometimes, they're there.
1: sometimes they, you know, they're, um, for people who are working in a first responder role that are listening, you know, they have an average of 125 diary dates at any given time. So you know they, they got a, so they do a lot of cut and paste, um, and so it can feel really impersonal, is the first thing that sometimes comes across. And and when you're in crisis or you're in need for something to be fixed, uh, the last thing you really want you prefer it to be more compassionate delivery, um, for sure. So we do talk that's we talk about that with people a lot. We'll be like, okay, so sometimes the delivery, but it's not that they don't want to help you. It's just that they're super busy and they're trying to manage as well so like let's get past the this that and then there's also just a lot of rumor oh if I end up on a medical profile of certain profile or whatever then I'm going to get fired which is just not it's just not based in fact um you know there is an accountability um there's a there's a change in language which I'm You know, it used to be that we had unlimited medical, but that's not true. It's not unlimited, Um, but it is as needed. So as long as you are doing your part to seek treatment and try and get healthy and well, you're good for a fairly long amount of time. Um, But you have to be doing your job. There's an obligation as an employee and an employer to try and get you back to work healthy. That's everybody's job. Um, So anyway, we just try and really clarify the roles of health services uh, or WorkSafe if it was a different organization because we do deal with some of the public servant. This is what they do. This is how you get who you ask and how you ask to get to the yes. Um, And then we spend a lot of time now, whereas I used to do it individually and I would reach out to the people that were off myself, uh, recognized very early on that that wasn't actually helpful. Uh, just introduce another person to the already overwhelming pile of people. And so what we do now is we meet with the supervisor when they let us know that somebody's maybe taken some time off. We will, And they don't even have to tell us who it is. That's the beauty of this, is that we don't have to know anybody's specific information if they choose to disclose it to us themselves that's that's their own but we we don't have to know a supervisor can just say hey somebody's off um what do i do and then we help them to figure out who is somebody on their unit that the person already has a connection with let's have a conversation early about what that looks like and how we can keep them meaningfully connected to the workplace while we support them to do whatever it is. And then we do a lot of stigma busting. So if you see somebody out at the golf course and they're ODS, go and ask them if you can play with them next time, right? Do not rumor about somebody. If you see them running a marathon, because they are running a marathon they're off if they're off and they're supported by health services in federal policing. At least I can say 100% if somebody works for federal policing and they are off on long-term ODS, they are supported because we've made sure that they're supported by health services and they have to do what they have to do to get healthy. So we built the whole program based on that. And then now we don't have to spend a lot of time on that part of the process because the supervisors and their teams are creating space we're hopefully they'll feel help, healthy and safe to come back when they're ready, right, because they're welcome back because they're supported by their colleagues and their supervisor and health services and us if they want. And um, we spend a lot of time just focusing on how we make the workplace well. So uh, fitness for duty, um, again, stigma busting, um, we do team buildings we do a lot a lot a lot of supervisor support where we just um help the supervisor to take a compassionate approach because they get so busy with their things that sometimes they forget um and then i teach yoga and meditation uh (laughs) and um we've created some restorative resting spaces based on a bunch of science around sleep um And keeping people healthy at work. Um, They do this in Japan a ton, but there's actually a study out of um, Calgary on RCMP members and shift workers um, on uh, fatigue management. And part of it is having these restorative spaces where you can go and rest um, if you need to or to rejuvenate um, to safely get some rest before you drive home a significant distance home. We have a lot of people who drive over an hour to get to and from work every day. So they need that rest in the middle of the day in order to safely get home. So we're just always trying to think of ideas that are more um, supportive front end rather than waiting until somebody is already injured, encourage people to use their benefits, that sort of thing. Okay. That was a lot. So.
0: (laughs) That's a big role. That's perfect. No. And even from my own journey of just having had gone through what I had been through, I knew in moments when I wasn't receiving the support that I felt I deserved, my healing was not going to progress. When I was met with complete support and understanding, things for me just moved along so much more efficiently. It allowed me to heal. So I'm actually happy to hear that the RCMP now is taking this stance of, we support you, go off, take the time that you need to take the knee. We'll check in with you once in a while. We'll try to stay out of your face. We are here to support you because we still do need that. And you're absolutely right. We don't get to like let people go off for prolonged periods of time and just run amok, right? That's not the way this works. The employer has a, a duty to you to make sure that you are doing the things you need to do while off to get better so that you can can come back to work. They're paying you for that. It's no different than a contract being in place. That's your employer. You've signed a contract to work for them.
1: Yeah. And I think we, a lot of us have, you know, it's the the thing that they tell us back to our earlier conversation about depot is that, you know, the RCP is your family, but they aren't really, they're your employer. And there are people that you will meet throughout your career that will feel like family for sure but at the end of the day health services isn't your family they are people who are there to support you to access your benefits that's it you know it's it's hard it's sometimes it's a hard pill to swallow to think of it that way but but when you sort of uh take that idea and put it into, you know, the RCMP isn't my family. My family is my family. And there are people in the workplace that I really like and respect and I can work with those people. And that's the thing, it's a big organization. So there's always somebody that you can pick to be in contact with if you, you know, Although it shouldn't be your wife if she works in the workplace.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So for you, like, obviously you guys are at the cutting edge. You're trying to change the way things are being done in the RCMP. And I applaud you for that. Where, where is this going to go over the next five, 10 years? And what are some of the things that you think need to be done that might not be taught being talked about right now?
1: Um, I think, okay, so. There were two questions. I there there um, there is a big move. There, these wellness positions are are popping up all over the country. Um, there are, I think there are about twelve of them in the Lower Mainland. Um, we have an actual overarching unit. Um, not I'm not part of it. Uh, but there is a unit that's you know there. Are they're building and trying to create things. Um, so there is, there is movement across the country to try and, to try and improve uh, things. And it's so multifaceted um, that it's really, you know, it's going to take a long time. Um, so it, there, so my response is, you know, there are things happening, but really we still have to stay grassroots in that we have to continue to look after one another um in meaningful ways and so the things i'm seeing also um things like uh there's a member i don't know if you want me to say his name or not but that has started hosting um weekend meetups for members who may have ptsd who maybe have retired or and, and want to stay connected or whatever. So they're gathering, um, which I think is really cool. Uh, another colleague of his, I believe is like running a running group. and um, they just ran the, um, I think they just ran the Vancouver marathon. They for sure did the sun run and I think I saw them, some of them were doing the Vancouver marathon. Um, there are Facebook pages that are gathering, uh, people who, uh, have, um, PTSD. So the messaging is getting out so that we're gathering in spaces in order to support one another in a positive way. And that's one of the ways that you and I connected. Um, and then, uh, you know, there are other ideas, things that we need to think about are how we, uh, how we help people as they move into retirement, which I think is something that, uh, and also just this continued effort to, um, I like to say instead of stigma busting that like shine light into the dark places. Um, you know, we need to, there are lots of us and lots of us are struggling and lots of us are thriving. And those of us who have made it through kind of some of the harder bits, um, can, you know, shed the light, shine the light back and be like, Hey, here's the path forward. Um, because as I say, it is complicated I, I, I've spoken to people of all, uh, like very diverse backgrounds, um, you know, people of color, our uh, black community, our uh, cisgender, gendered transgendered, um, you know, people have really, really complex situations, and and so there isn't a big, you know, this is what we're gonna do, and we're gonna fix this, and we're gonna make the workplace a safe and healthy place. No, it's it's gonna be, you know, a multifaceted approach, um, but where. I think the more that we can just, um, believe each other, believe each other's and share stories like you are. Um, I think that's how, how we're going to slowly make this better.
0: I 100% agree with you. I think that it takes a community to get behind this issue in order to, properly address it. Uh, One of the things I'm talking about right now is suicide and how suicide loves to lurk in the corners of silence. And for many of us, our rates of suicide in the first responder world are quite high as well. A lot of times we hear those stories and then it's, you know, it's unfortunately it's too late. We never knew this person was suffering. They were, you know, they were never showing any signs of it. So the only way to get ahead of it, I believe, is to truly build this compassionate community behind post-traumatic stress where everyone's welcome to show up as they are.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And we'll never have those statistics because it's a private, private issue. And it's, you know, unfortunately we won't ever have the actual statistics and, um, but it is a real thing. And, and I also know that um, because I've seen it uh, a number of times in the last three years where one person just picking up the phone has saved a colleague's life. so um, it's a you know it's a powerful thing um, when when those 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 thoughts sneak in and you talked about them on your recent podcast about the invasive thoughts and and you know, like I didn't know it was not normal to think, oh, they might be better off without me." I, I didn't know that until I went to a psychologist and they were like, no, people don't people don't actually think that Jess. and I was like, Oh, okay. That's good to know. Right. Like, <laughs> and that's hopefully that's not shocking, but I'm saying it out loud because you no, to it's say not, it. <laughs> it's not shocking
0: at all. No, it's not. It's, yeah. it's something that uh, I too had to learn that. Cause there was so many times people were like, well, are you suicidal? And I was like, no. And they're oh. like, well, are you having suicidal ideation thoughts of not wanting to be here? Yeah. Okay. Well that's a form of suicide. And, oh, really? And then that's, we we need to educate people on this, right? Because I didn't recognize even in that moment that just the simple thought of not wanting to be here was a very clear picture of, I wasn't well.
1: Yeah, exa- exactly. And, and it sounded different in my head, but it was, it was that it wasn't, there was no planning. There was no, no desire not to be here. It was more like they'd be better off if I wasn't it would be, life would be easier. And, and we know that's not true. I know that's not true. And I knew that wasn't true at the time. Um, but it took my doctor, my doctor, to just, I would be like, Oh yeah, well, you know, sometimes I say that. And she's like, yes, people don't say that. Like, that's not, that's not a healthy thought. It's not, there's nothing healthy about that thought process. And if those are coming to you, you need to really, you know, call, that's, she's like, those are the days you need to call me. <laughs> you know, when I say call anytime, <laughs> that's the anytime. <laughs>
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I mean, this is, it's such a sensitive topic to talk about one's mental health. But again, you... You highlighted why we're doing this and we're doing this to help others who are, you know, the ones that are behind us that are, you know, still paving their way forward through the RCMP who have the more junior service who we can at least hold our hand back and show them that some of the stuff that you're going through, this is very normal to go through it. This is how you talk about it. This is how you educate yourself in order to be able to talk about this and this is how you get the help around it. Most people are going that to go through And that you can be really,
1: stuff. really, really healthy. You can be really healthy and really, really happy and live a very contented, full, meaningful life and have PTSD.
0: I couldn't agree more. Jess, if there was one thing in closing that you could leave the listener with today about your story, whether it's a message of hope or positivity or where we're going with this, what would it be?
1: Oh, that's a tough question. Um, I, I think um, just believe yourself, take care of yourself, do it early, do it often, and when you have the opportunity, share your story and hold your hand out for another person.
0: Beautiful. The gift of giving back. Jess uh, McLean, everyone, 19 years You have done so much for the Mounties. We know you are going to continue to do more for the Mounties and nudge this topic forward. We thank you for being in your position. We thank you for healing. We thank you for being who you are. It was a complete honour to have you here today, Jess. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, and thank you for everything that you're doing, Nate.
0: Thank you for joining us on Season 2. If you are a first responder with an incredible story into post-traumatic stress please reach out and connect with myself. Season two is based on your story. And if you want to step up to the plate and share your story with the world, I would be more than honored to help you do that. Thank you for your continued support with this project. And thank you for tuning in today.